Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the eighth day of November, and the year is indeed still 2021. I gave two video lectures um, over the weekend um, generating the coda for my year-long uh, journey into the aging process in humans and dealing with the pathobiochemistry and the pathophysiology that leads to morbidity and death in our species. And so the last two video lectures are moving very close to the end of that entire arc. And I'm actually almost starting to look forward to that end because I've got a whole new project I'm going to spring on you guys. Um, today, I'm going to do this uh, audio lecture because I want to fill in, as I do with the audio lectures, more about the details of T lymphocytes. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the whole T regulatory cell regulation. Now, why all these things are being discussed is when, when the discussion finally gets into how is it that humans age differentially? Is it just genetics? And my answer to that is a flat out, um, very likely no. Uh, is it environment? Does environment play a key role? Uh, very likely, yes, along with genetics. So that would be a yes. And do epigenetic modifications play a role? And I would say double yes. So ultimately, that centers around the um, event ontology I've been trying to use as my um, paradigm for describing human health and human um, physiology and biochemistry from neonate to uh, aging and then death. And so why we're talking about this aging process, for one thing, it's fascinating. But remember, it's completely heterogeneous, meaning that some people can age very quickly and move into a sedentary state and then sometimes into a neurodegenerative state in their 70s, while a lot of other uh, people, maybe with the same genetic background and is living in the same environment, um, presumably rendering the same kind of um, infections and inflammations because of those genetics and because of the environment being very similar, nevertheless live much longer, do not become sedentary either because they uh, have lost some kinetic mobility, but also they don't become sedentary because they continue to uh, exercise and stay, quote, healthy, unquote. That group of people often do not get into a neurodegenerative mode until later in life, usually into their 80s or even into their early 90s. And indeed, some of those people die before there's any neurodegeneration that's visible, um, either even after they die upon autopsy, looking for, you know, uh, fibrillary tangles or uh, sometimes looking at the A-beta protein uh, accumulation in certain neuronal uh, synaptic regions, uh, and they show no presentation of, uh, uh becoming, um, 
uh, let's just say, deficient in some of their faculties. And sometimes those people also don't have any sarcopenia that is a senescence of their muscular uh, apparatus, yet there might be those same people that have um, various kinds of um, autoimmune diseases that are associated with the bone or sometimes also with muscle, that, such as arthritis. So um, the constellation of the aging phenotype, both at the biochemical and physiological level, are, as I said, quite heterogeneous. And what I'm trying to do with all this discussion of the immune system is to give you a stark interior view of how even just looking at the uh, activities of the T cells and to a lesser extent, many of the innate cells that interact with those T lymphocytes, you get to understand how any slight alteration in the regulation of those um, cellular activities, which are going to be bound up into their bioenergetics. And basically you can talk about either glycolysis or fatty acid oxidation for the generation of ATP, um, will subsequently alter their gene expression patterns because of transcription factor alteration, um, leading then to either T lymphocytes that can register um, according to a senescent process and remain relatively quiescent as you age. I'm talking now about T helper cell lineages and also the CD8 lineages, including NK natural killer cells and um, the cytotoxic T lymphocytes as well, that they can be in somewhat of a quiescent mode and not generate hyperinflammatory responses to otherwise relatively benign infections or stress responses. Whereas in other situations where there's a modification of that process, bioenergetics, transcription factor expression, um, and then of course all the signal transduction cascades that are necessary to mediate and modify those responses within the cell and then um, from that cell to other um, communicating cellular components in the blood or at the tissue that can result in either a suppression of the immune response and therefore an invocation of higher levels of infection nascent or higher levels of potential tumorigenesis nascent that can also result in morbidity and death very rapidly in those people, right? So in order to get that kind of detail, you have to understand the nitty gritty, the molecularity of um, how these cells interact and how they change over time. And for that, you have to get a full understanding of um, the inner workings of their biochemical pathways. And so that's what we're doing here. So let's just get right back into that and get right back into it. I just spent the last seven minutes explaining to you what I was going to do. So that's kind of funny. All right. Now, we have been discussing in the video lecture, a uh, paper from Frontiers in Immunology, February 2020. I'll put it in the show notes. Now, recall the protein FOXP3. Now, we're not looking at its expression. On the last episode, uh, in the last minutes of the last video lecture I did, 
we were looking at transcriptional control over the FOXP3 locus. Remember, FOXP3 itself, when it's expressed as a polypeptide, is going to act as a major transcription factor in T regulatory cells. Remember that the major function of T regulatory cells, that is their card carrying function, is to suppress the immune response otherwise conducted by the other T lymphocytic lineages, right? Act as suppressors. They're called T regs, but they used to be called T suppressor cells. Now, by and large, that suppression activity is because of the activity of the protein FOXP3 acting as a transcription factor. So now I'm telling you, the FOXP3 protein itself can be regulated by covalent modification. So first of all, what kind of covalent modification? Well, acetylation, phosphorylation, and ubiquitinylation. Those are three we're going to discuss right now. There are more, but those three, right? So how do you get an acetylated FOXP3 and what does it do in terms of uh, its activity in the T regulatory cell? Well, short chain fatty acids will actually enhance the acetylation of FOXP3. And a protein called TIP60 in association with those short chain fatty acids, presumably going through uh, limited beta oxidation, and then making enough acetyl-CoA to act as a substrate for acetylation. When, you, when those two processes occur, short-chain fatty acids in the presence of TYP60 protein, you're going to get an acetylation of FOXP3 at a specific uh, amino acid sequence, and that's going to stabilize the T-regulatory cells because the FOXP3 protein stabilized. It's going to increase the activity of the suppressor function. Now, that's one. Now, as it turns out, if you deacetylate that protein, okay, that's removing of the acetate I just told you we put, put in there, with an HDAC79 or CERT1 activity, if you deacetylate, that will destabilize FOXP3 protein and therefore decrease the functionality of the Treg suppressor function. Okay. Now, here's number two, phosphorylation. Phosphorylation can be mitigated by PIM12 or CDK2. Once that phosphorylation occurs on FOXP3, you get a decreased activity and a reduced expression of some of the surface biomarkers on those T regulatory cells, which can be picked up by flow cytometry, for example. So you get a decrease in T reg cell suppressor activity from that phosphorylation. If you, if you phosphor, that's by using the PIM12 CDK2. If you phosphorylate with the NL kinase, the NLK protein, at a different site of phosphorylation, <clears throat> that's going to actually inhibit the proteasomal degradation of FOXP3. So that will maintain its stability. Therefore, presumably, um, allow it to function as uh, as a transcription factor to control the suppressor function of the T regulatory cell. There you go. Two different phosphorylation sites, two different kinds of activity. Similar kite for ubiquitinylation. So as it turns out, USP7 will block a certain 
polyubiquitin elation, whereas the chemokine CCL3 will enhance the ubiquitin elation of the FOXP3 protein. Stub 1, which will allow for that polyubiquitin on lysine 48, in conjunction again by the chemokine CCL3 increase and with the lowering of USP7 activity, will lead that FOXP3 directly into the proteasome for the canonical classical pathway for protein degradation. You degrade FOXP3, you're going to remove that suppressor function. And at the same time, you're going to allow for that T regulatory cell to carry out its immunomodulatory function. Remember the either or discussion I do on the video lecture. Now, that's one kind of ubiquitinylation. If you have ubiquitinylation because of HIF1 alpha, that's the hypoxia initiation factor 1 alpha. Uh, and that ubiquitinylation requires the TRAF6 protein, which will allow for lysine 63 link polyubiquitinylation. That will actually cause the FOXP3 to move to the nucleus. When it moves to the nucleus, it functions as a transcription factor. So once again, ubiquitinylation can be in the either category. Can some ubiquitinylation can lead to proteosomal degradation of the transcription factor, and ubiquitinylation at the lysine 63 versus the one at 48 I just mentioned will actually allow for the protein to be fully functional as a transcription factor because it'll get it localized into the nucleus. Of course, what has to occur to be able to get in, get involved in chromatin remodeling and then therefore transcription. Uh, a unique set of genes, and those are going to be the ones that allow for the suppressor activity of the FOXP3 transcription factor, canonical for the suppressor activity of Tregs. Okay. So let's go further and further. If we have single nucleotide polymorphisms, certain ones, in either interleukin-2 or interleukin-2 receptor alpha that will destabilize that will destabilize t regulatory cells destabilize means they're not going to be very efficient functionally as a t suppressor cell now that's interesting because interleukin 2 binding to cd25 a surface protein actually acts as a growth regulator and it is conducive of stabilizing the T regulatory cell. So interleukin-2, which is a cytokine, acts as a growth regulator and controller over the proficient activity of T regulatory cells, whereas any single nucleotide polymorphism at specific sites, not any, but at specific SNPs, in either the interleukin-2 um, gene and therefore the protein, uh, or interleukin-2 receptor alpha will then lead to destabilization. So guess what happens when people age? That's right. You get single nucleotide polymorphisms in interleukin-2 genes and in its receptor, thus yielding an inefficient activation of T-regulatory cells. Okay. Now, there's a protein called P10 we've talked about many times in authentic biochemistry. P10 is a phosphatase. 
And if P10 is functional in the Treg cells, that's going to stabilize the signaling through that interleukin-2 pathway. Further, it's also going to stabilize the GITR receptor interacting with a DTA12F8 antibody. That will ultimately yield a destabilization. So P10 will stabilize at the interleukin-2 surface locus and allow for T-regulatory cell function because of its dephosphorylation of proteins within that cascade. But FOXO1 and FOXO3A in the cytoplasm are going to destabilize the signaling that's going through the GITR receptor. Okay. Now, I'm going to get into that in a moment, more detail. It's going to continue on here. You also have an interferon gamma receptor on the surface of Treg cells. And when interferon gamma binds to that receptor, it destabilizes the Treg. Think about that being a pro-inflammatory response because interferon gamma is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, glycoprotein known as a cytokine. Likewise, the tumor necrosis factor receptor binding to TNF-alpha will at times, depending on the concentration of the TNF-alpha, enhance stabilization or diminish stabilization. So there is definitely an on-off switch just depending on TNF-alpha concentration to its receptor, mediated, of course, uh, through its binding to the receptor. Now, if FOXO1 and FOXO3A are not in the cytoplasm, acting as destabilizing mode through the Gitter receptor, through that antibody binding, that DTA binding, if they are, that doesn't happen, then the FOXO3A and the FOXO1 enter the nucleus. They, in the presence of EOS, which we talked about in the uh, video lecture, and another protein called Helios, are all going to be positive for FOXP3 full-on transcriptional activation of the T suppressor function of the Treg cell lineages. One more thing, there's a receptor called the OX40 on the T regulatory cell, and if I, it binds the anti-OX40, which is an antibody, glycoprotein, an immunoglobulin, if it binds to that uh, OX40 on the Treg cell, that will act as a stabilizer to the T regulatory cell. But if the OX40 binds to the OX40 um, receptor called the OX40 ligand on the APC, either the antibody binding to it or the OX40 ligand binding directly to the OX40 receptor on the T-regulatory cell. And remember, the OX40 ligand is on an antigen-presenting cell, like a dendritic cell. That's going to destabilize. At the same time, the antigen-presenting cell with SEM4A receptor will aid in the binding to the VEGF receptor via NRP1 
mediation. And all of that is going to stabilize the T-regulatory cell upon APC uh, encounter. So to summarize what I just told you, here are some of the mechanisms for the Treg stability and instability. Interleukin-2 is therefore critical, just based on what I've just been explaining to you. So I'll cost you my paper actually published in the Journal of Immunology back in 2016. Don't worry, it'll be in the show notes. Interleukin-2 is critical for Treg stability, as I said, also for the Treg maintenance, whereas polymorphisms in either the interleukin-2 or interleukin-2-RA, the receptor, um, which you see in diabetes and also in aging, will corrupt the interleukin-2 stabilization of T-reg cells. Uh-huh. Now, the pro-inflammatory cytokines, which you also get in diabetes type 2, obesity, and in aging, including interferon gamma and TNF-alpha, can alter the T-reg phenotype, full stop, Many Treg-associated molecules are important for optimal suppressal activity, including the CTLA-4, the Gitter receptor, and the OX40 receptor that we just went through. Oh, by the way, the CTLA-4, if it binds to an antibody called abatacep, it will stabilize, it will stabilize the T-regulatory cell. However, if there are single nucleotide polymorphisms in the CTLA-4, what it will do is destabilize the Treg. Okay, so where CTLA-4 binding to its receptor on T helper cells will make those T helper cells uh, stop functioning as pro-inflammatory, right? T regulatory cells are jacked up by that binding of CTLA-4. CTLA-4 is a protein that's often, not often, but sometimes enough to where it's in the literature often, <laughs> expressed in tumors. So tumors will promote T-regulatory function, suppressing an immune response, you see. At the same time, the CTLA-4 will also suppress the T-helper cells directly. But any single nucleotide polymorphisms in the CTLA-4, there's an enhanced mutation rate of that protein, say, coming from the tumor, then you're going to destabilize the T-regulatory cell, which means you're not going to suppress the immune response. And those same, those same uh, mutations in the CTLA-4 will not be recognized in the T-helper cells, and you'll go ahead and have a full-on immune response against the tumor. See how that works, okay? So you have agonistic antibodies to the getter receptor, but there, and, and you also have antagonistic antibodies to get a receptor like the DTA 1, 2, F8, right? And so that's going to ultimately be detrimental to Treg mediated stability and then therefore its function as suppressor. And the intracellular molecules that we talked about, Helios, EOS, and P10 are all optimal for Treg function. And the FOXO13A localization in the nucleus is going to stabilize the FOXP3 in the nucleus, and that's going to be functionally uh, positive. If it's in the cytoplasm, it's not. So now we are at a stage where we're almost at a point <laughs> where we can um, get, to, get to a stopping point of our discussion of the regulation what's of, of the transcription factors within Treg. Let me finish with just now the Treg fully functioning with an antigen-presenting cell. 
First of all, the antigen presenting cell can interact with a T effector cell like a TH1 or a TH2. You have a CD80 and a CD86 protein bound on the surface of antigen presenting cells like a dendritic cell, any good professional APC. If CD80 uh, is expressing fine and CD86 is expressing fine on the APC cell, they will bind coherently to the CTLA-4 on the surface of the T regulatory cell, okay? That all will then allow for the full suppressive activity of the T regulatory cell coming directly from an APC, which is also interacting with T effector cells. Now, very interestingly, the T effector cells will produce some interleukin-2, and that interleukin-2 will bind to the CD25 receptors, I've been telling you, on the surface of the Treg cell, and then that will start to decrease the proliferation and activation of the T effector cell. So the T effector cell is the source of the interleukin-2 acting paracrine to control its own activity by activating the suppressor function of the T regulatory cell. Now, when all that's going on, that's a core Treg module of activity where the FOXP3 transcription factor is increasing the amount of expression of CTLA-4. Remember, that's going to bind to the CD80 and CD86. It's going to increase the expression of CD25, which is going to be the receptor for interleukin-2 coming off of the T helper cells to help keep the suppressor function going. But it's going to decrease its own interleukin-2 activity because it heightened the level of interleukin-2 activity, acting then autocrine would overload or compete with their T effector cell, therefore blocking the T effector cell's own feedback regulation of suppression of inflammation by erstwhile activating and maintaining the stability of the Treg cell. Now, the Treg cells can also take on, this is something I mentioned in my uh, video lecture, what's known as a THX-like modular function. It actually turns out more like a TH17, when you go further into the literature. And so what happens there, you get a TH17-like transcriptional control. You get TH17 homing receptors and you get TH17 cytokine production from a Treg cell, right? That then, when that happens, that will give you T follicular cells Th1 cells, Th2, and Th17 cells, full functional. So those T regulatory cells then are going to help create the CXCR5, CXCR3, CCR8, and CCR6 motifs. Those are going to be T, uh, helper follicular, Th1, Th2, Th17, respectively. And the transcription factors that are going to be uh, co-induced because of that regulatory function of Treg now transforming into these pro-inflammatory cells are going to be FOXP3 BCL6, the T follicular helper cells, FOXP3 TBAT for the TH1, FOXP3 IRF4 for the TH2, and FOXP3 STAT3 um, for the TH17 cell lineages. There you go. Okay. So now you understand our T regulatory cell could be in, in mod, could be modulatory as well as pro-inflammatory, depending on the state of the FOXP3 function. 
in association with antigen presenting cells, and then ultimately through the control of our transcription factors. And the, what is the transcription factor then regulates as expressed, such as the various levels of CTLA4, CD25, and interleukin 2, and those TH subscript X homing receptors and TH X subscript cytokines, which are then going to give you the full florid activity of T helper cell lineages and the ultra very special THFs, uh, T helper follicular cells, which you find actually in the central nervous system. So FOXP3 controls the core module and it can act to suppress the T effector activation proliferation by suppressing the antigen presenting cell function via the CTLA4. That's what I just mentioned to you. And that's where we're basically, um, you know, finishing off, right? It also is depriving interleukin-2 from other T cells. And when that happens, again, T effector cell lineage activity at the paracrine level will decrease, okay? And the additional T subscript X-like module of suppressive activity can be induced and that will then allow for these Tregs to express the TH subscript X-like transcription factors, allowing for the Tregs to take on the properties, as I just told you, of TH1, TH2, TH17, or even those follicular T helper cells. And that all then will deliver um, an alteration of in situ suppression in an infection site, all by the modulation of those proteins. So I'm going to leave you with that now. There's more interesting detail that's going to take us right into aging. And I'm going to do that either by picking this up in my um, video lecture or maybe doing another audio lecture. I just haven't decided which. This is Dr. Dan Guerra saying, Melthenic Biochemistry, bye for now.